Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is Putting the Science in Science Fiction, where fiction and science collide. We'll get right into it, Yuta, and um... Uh, John and I will do an intro and then we'll just start talking about it. And uh, obviously, I'm not, we have Ben here. Hey. Uh, code name is Lucy today. Yeah. And then- <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make that easy for everybody. I think mine, my, mine's just a number. Mine says 95244. Yeah, I'm just, I was wondering about the names, but then again, as a guy with a fairly unspellable name, I'm, I'm usually <laughs> the last to comment on names. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, I mean, before we just dive into it, is there anything that you want us to either A, make sure we talk about or B, make sure we don't talk about? Because other than that, we'll just dive right into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm good. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Sweet. Um, John's been practicing the pronunciation of your name. So we're going to let him, <laughs> we're going to let him give it a go. And, and then make fun of him altogether. <laughs> so uh, Okay, uh, before, before you do this, I'm going to say that this is an unusual name even by Sri Lankan standards. So don't feel bad for not being able to get it on the first go. <laughs> my, my high school teachers could not get this name on the first go. I, in, in fact, in school, I had to wear like a little pin with a metal badge with my name on it. Wow. So wait, why is that? Why is it such a rare name? What's the... Because I think the last time this name was used was about a thousand years ago. A mythological prince who used to control sort of Sri Lanka's version of the X-Men. Yeah, and it's, it's also one of nine names because you have sort of ancestral and clan markers and so on and so forth. You have nine names? So it's, it's a bit complicated. Yeah, yeah. So, so my full name is Rajapaksa Konara Mudiansilage Pileshi Udanje Bandara Vijayaratna. So those in sort of, if you, if you tell that name to Sri Lankan, they'll be like, okay, right, you're from this place, from this province, and the name Rajabaksa means your family at some point was part of the ruling dynasty, and sort of split off the Mudian Silage parties. Okay, so the dude left to be uh, an economic superpower, enough to start his own dy- sub-dynasty from the whole thing. Um, so you also find names like Shehan Perera, which is much easier when you're filling out visa forms and things like that. And that's because when the British came, when the British invaded, uh, most of so most of these names are sort of they had to change in order mm-hmm. to be understood. However, the, the hill country held on. Uh-huh. So when we call you when we call you Yuda, that is grossly undercutting the history of your full name. <laughs> It is, but then again, look, it, it, these are these are all variables, right? <laughs> oh, but that that's um, and we'll, we'll get into that more. But I I think it's uh, it's really cool because when John uh, and John and I wrote a novel together too called Beyond Kuiper, and yeah. uh, one of the species called uh, the Dragson, we mm. actually use the name as a story mechanism. So mm. depending on the uh, the structure of your name, would tell the person mm. who heard it different things about that person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Sri Lankan names are built along those lines. Hmm. Um, in contrast with often with Indian names, where you'll find one first name quite often, and mm-hmm. it's, 
and sort of these structures are quite rare. So it's interesting, like etymology and so on. But quite often, what this boils down to is me putting this on, like uh, you know, I travel a lot for conferences and work. So me putting this on a uh, on an entry form, and the visa officer just looking down at this guy. This is your name, right? You, How you, many times your parents have you... love you enough as a child? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I, I was going to ask, so your parents went through a thousand years of history to find this name or what's the, what? Um, I believe there were soothsayers involved <laughs> because there's this whole crap about like auspicious timings and so on, all mm. the syllables that you have to select and they found the syllables and then they went, all right, let's go after like, what kind of name do we, um, what kind of name do we want this guy to have? So it translates, um, I think the closest English translation would be Victor. Hmm. All right. Okay. Like the actual, like, you know, if you break it down into what it would have meant in old Singhala, you translate that to modern Singhala, it'll actually turn out to be like, winner of all wars and the closest appropriate would be Victor. So. Mm -hmm. that, okay. that is fascinating. And just so you know, we've been recording, so we're a hundred percent using all of that in the oh, well, <laughs> that oh, was fascinating no. <laughs> listen uh singapore um airport guy i meant you no offense i know you had my best intentions and you said why don't we just move here and change your name to something <laughs> that's good i, that's I would good. love so, to be allowed back in changi at some point thank you <laughs> So John, uh, let, let, I want to hear. I want to hear you go. Let, let's see you give this a go. All right, ladies and gentlemen. This evening we are joined by Nebula Award-nominated author Udanjaya Wijarana. Wijaratna, there's a T. But <laughs> close enough for government work, as Stephen King. Oh, said. I was. I listen. <laughs> uh, I listened to the entire. Um, audiobook for yeah. the salvage crew and at the very end I was going off of how Nathan Fillion was pronouncing it and so he, yeah, he, he got it wrong so too. He, he rushed it a little bit. Uh, like, Damn it. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so, so, so you, I'd love for you to give our listeners a little background on what you do when you're not authoring because that is was yeah. really interesting to us about the data science and all the AI stuff you're working on. I think that'll be a great place to start for tonight. So why don't you give a little uh, background on all of that amazing okay. science? Okay, so I do two things. Um, one is as a data scientist, I work with an outfit called Anasia, which is a research, um, which is a research think tank that works across around 17-ish countries in the global south. So what we do is policy. And how we do policy is instead of just pontificating about it, we do large sample uh, research. So for example, um, this piece of research called After Access about a couple of years ago that investigated the question of what happens after people gain access to the internet, particularly in our part of the world, where it's often like a checkbox on a political campaign. And how do people's behavior patterns change? And so for that, mm. we did 2,500 face-to-face interviews across India. So I work with the data science team, where we call it the data algorithms and policy team, where that's upscaled. So the kind of data that I use is mobile phone call records for millions of people, um, data from Facebook. Uh, there's an extraordinary amount of uh, data available from Facebook. So I've been using uh, the friends network 
for 2.3 billion people to show that uh, friend links between nations, for example, mirror bilateral migration and trade. So the movement of billions of dollars of goods and millions of people. And that um, using, for example, one of my specialties, misinformation and hate speech. And that's mostly what I focus on. So for that uh, platform, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so right now I'm building um, AI for misinformation. It's AI, but let's, let's uh, to be practical, it's machine learning uh, across different languages. So for that, uh, I use research access to Facebook's backend where you can see every single public post ever made in the history of Facebook and in all these different languages from all these different continents and countries. And potentially you can use, you can start using this data to see if we can actually improve and build systems that actually work and then open source them. So that, that's more or less the kind of work that I'm involved in. So it's at the intersection of policy, tech, ethics, and there are all these big questions of, right, what, you know, before we jump in and design a system, what are the, what are the implications of this? Does this go against sort of the morals that we hold? Mm -hmm. And because often these systems are quite top-down, they're quite authoritarian. Do we really want to be giving governments um, these kinds of weapons? And in some cases, we are, we are, in some cases, we are reacting. Uh, in some cases, the government has already gotten a tool and now we're interrogating it and trying to see right how does this model actually perform um, what does it actually do um, is it just running linear regressions and calling it ai or is there actually something that we should be we should be concerned about here and I, there's a ton of that that i want to unpack but for our listeners um you had said something really interesting that i just want to go back to which is uh you said it was AI, but it's really machine learning. And for all of us, we understand oh, right. because yeah. of, we understand yeah. that because it, the, your, yeah. the algorithm did not pass the Turing test. But why don't you kind of explain that a little bit more for our listeners as to okay. why it's okay. not AI? Sure. Um, so the Turing test is kind of outdated at this stage. I would argue that the Turing test was passed by Eliza, chatbot in the 60s, quite famous example. Um, and well over half of listeners had no idea that they were talking to a program. Uh, mm -hmm. The Turing test is actually quite easy to pass. So, in fact, this book was for me a Turing test because when I started writing this, a bunch of, bunch of my friends and authors were like, no, you, you can't make this work. This is not going to work. I was like, so let me show it to a publisher without telling them first. And let's see if they bite. And if they do, I'll tell them that part of this is AI generated. So this hmm. is fair pass. However, the reason I, I would differentiate between AI and machine learning is when we say AI, there's connotations of, um, there's a wealth of history behind that, behind that word, AI. You have Rossum's universal robots uh, from the Czech play, right? That, that, that coined the word robot. You have shades of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You have Golems, you have uh, Talos, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger running around naked, uh, getting clothes from random bikers. And you have all this sort of, this wealth of history that, that suggests mind of its own a conscious being however artificial that reacts in different ways that in some cases feels pain and feels hurt and is really a general adaptable intelligence what we have right now even though extraordinarily sophisticated are extremely domain constrained very narrow uh, versions of 
superpowered versions of statistics is what we're mm. doing right now. So we have things that can play chess better than any chess master on earth. However, it can't pick up, it can't get up at the same time and go bring me a glass of water because that's a different set of problems altogether. It is not a general intelligence at all. It's not, so it's not an artificial intelligence. It, it is really a glorified version of statistics. Hmm. And we keep finding better and more interesting ways to do this. And, you know, some would argue that with the advent of deep learning and neural networks, where we are sort of mimicking brain structures to do this stuff, that sure, we should really be calling the artificial intelligence, but again, it's still machine learning and AI has become this sort of, particularly in the sphere that I work in, in, in development circles, it's become this sort of buzzword for anything that people don't understand. And there's a lot that people don't understand. So right now, AI is basically whatever they can't explain that happens in a computer. So I, I just keep repeatedly face farming at some of these conversations. Uh, yeah. So, like, for example, I run a fact checker, um, which is, like, something totally separate to all this stuff. Uh, we now have, like, 150,000 users on the app where we started last year. Uh, there's, there's some stuff on the back end that basically classifies misinformation that comes in. And it tries to give a probabilistic rating based on the language and structure and style to, is this fake or is this not? And the reason we're doing this is because, you know, this takes a toll on people who are volunteering. And that's technically AI. However, as the guy who built it, I know that that is basically large amounts of data thrown at a fairly explainable algorithm that was cutting edge back in the 80s. And now we is coming into its own because we have large amounts of data. So there's sort of like the weird dynamics in, around that word. Fascinating. That's fantastic. That's, yeah, that's sorry the for podcast right there. Like, no, this no. Really just gets to me. What's the word that you'd prefer to use? Um, I mean, let's stick with AI because I mean, as much as I complain about this, I've lost the marketing war. Uh, so <laughs> AI is the shorthand that people use for sure. this. And um, I can be a language purist and say no, but then again, it's also a shorthand that people mm -hmm. use in linguistic drift. It's a thing. I prefer to sort of make distinctions and say, write this and this, but this is science fiction. AI is, is acceptable. John, make sure your mic is down, just FYI. <laughs> I was trying to avoid Darth Vader breathing when others were talking. <laughs> it's okay. Like, can you, can you also breathe like the Imperial March? Because that would be cool. I'm uh, not going <laughs> to try right now. I, uh, how, how much of Darth Vader do you think is just machine learning at the end of the day? Well, hmm, it's a very good question. Given that he never really got back up to his power levels back when he was killing children as Anakin. Mm. So whatever he was running wasn't that good. <laughs> he was still he was still badass, yes, but not that good. And I suspect Palpatine well Palpatine sabotaged his suit anyway, so um, he probably wouldn't have given him the good stuff. That's fascinating. I never thought of that way, because you're right. He he was definitely more um, more aggressive as Anakin sure. like, than yes. he was as Darth Vader. He, he lost a measurable portion of his mass and thus, in theory, the midichlorians that would have been there. So he would have been a, a weaker force user. Yeah. And, and he wasn't as agile anymore. So he basically developed this style of just using a lightsaber like a battle axe. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just brute force it. Yeah. What about, what about that stuck on scene at the end of Rogue One? Isn't that supposed to blast all of our preconceived notions about how slow or fast or how powerful Vader was? True. I mean, but I absolutely love that scene. And I feel like it's still, he doesn't move that fast. Mm. He's still just kind of dominating through a group of yeah, people. True, true, true. And the thing is, and he just, the thing is, he's still, I mean, he's still one of the most powerful. Uh, sure. The Jedi ever so there, there's a scene I think in the extended universe in the comics where he's in a valley and he's surrounded by Jedi and soldiers um, literally like there's there's an entire legion around him and he looks up and says all I see are dead men hmm. so he's still pretty powerful it's just that <laughs> you know kind of not really a patch on what he used to be <laughs> which defeats the whole purpose of having AI around you in the first place to that note, do you think that they used a uh, you know ai and thus a robot army as a way to make a massive amount of killing more palatable to the masses <laughs> well I don't know because at the same time they had the clone army on the other side and if possible that was a much bigger ethics violation. I mean, think about the ethics of taking one guy and repeatedly photocopying him over and over again yeah. sending them out to die. And that, that for me is like the Jedi are basically like a religious fundamentalist institution. Uh, so yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I the robots bad. are actually I bad for them. <laughs> I mean, the robots on this. Well, they, 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 there's a there's a um, an, a classic Luke Skywalker uh, quote about uh, you know uh, from from the uh, from the Empire's point of view, uh, which to your point, Yuda, is uh, it, it reminded me of it. It's it's Star Wars: the story of an orphan boy who becomes radicalized after military strike, yes. kills his family. He is indoctrinated into an ancient religion, joins a band of rebel insurgents, and carries out a terrorist attack, killing 300,000 people. Exactly. And from my perspective, the empire is building, as a policy guy, the empire is building public infrastructure. Sure, they're, they're blowing up a planet here and there, but you know, <laughs> you got to crack a few no, eggs to make it. too soon, man. Too soon, <laughs> I have to say. It's too soon. <laughs> um, yeah! <laughs> I can't, oh, can't find the, can't find the silver lining in that one. But <laughs> nice job. <laughs> there, there was um, have you have you read this uh, book by a Russian anthropologist called uh, biologist I think called Kirill Leskov. It's called The Last Ring Bearer. It mm -mm. flips Tolkien on its head. Basically, it's oh. written. It's the Lord of the Rings written from the perspective of the orcs, and they're like. Hey man, we're trying to bring the industrial age into this shithole. Uh, we, we are building roads, right? We're building public infrastructure, and all of you monarchs who believe in bloodlines and and dynasties and don't understand the concept of meritocracies or democracy, we are here to change all of that. We are bringing the industrial revolution into Middle Earth, and they hate us because they hate us basically. <laughs> It flips the entire lot of the things. It's brilliant, but of course, unauthorized by the Tolkien estate. You said a Russian anthropologist? Uh, yes, yes. Because yeah, uh, that's basically the 1917 revolution right there, right? Yes, yes. That would totally have been it. That makes sense. Wow, that's crazy. Actually, I was wondering, in you know, 
getting to the sort of the science and the society because I'm fascinated by the fact that you're leveraging all this technology um, for policy. So where is the line for you for where decisions have to be made? Um, you know, how much do you put in the hands of this technology and how much do you how much do you have control over this, I guess, or how much do you think that in the future we should have control when we apply this in mass? So I, I think it's inevitable that these technologies become more and more ubiquitous and, be, and become more and more uh, of a part of a decision-making process. Um, and I don't have a very clear-cut line because a clear-cut line doesn't exist in my mind uh, because we tend to think of it as, hey, human decision-making, okay. AI decision-making, we don't understand it, potentially bad. However, humans are just as mysterious, if not more mysterious than any, any machine learning that we have right hmm. now. Uh, for example, um, there was a study done on Israeli judges that showed that if you were a criminal, the chances of you getting a positive indictment in the morning was about 65%. Then it drops to 0% towards, uh, towards the middle of the day. Yeah. And then he climbs back up again. And the reason for it climbing back up was the judges had lunch. Yeah. That's and that the, I've seen the same study in American systems too. It's yeah, it's a yeah. it's pretty chilling. Exactly. And these are people who are, I would say, at performing at the highest levels of explainability and due process mm -hmm. on earth, because these are judges and, and that's part of their training and that's what they're trained to do. If you ask if 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 you have a surgery and the doctor slips up and you die. Uh, and if I call on the doctor to explain themselves, will I really be able to understand the minute of what happened mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, something may have gone wrong that, that could not have been foreseen. So in that case, the doctor is essentially a black box to me. So we just keep building better and better artificial black boxes. And what I think will happen is that we will get to a stage, we keep getting to stages where we are more comfortable with this technology, right? Um, for example, I don't have an Amazon Echo or Google Home. Damn. I don't want one. Yeah, it's a terrifying thought to me. But millions of people are perfectly fine with this. I don't mm -hmm. want a Nest camera around, but... Have you watched The Social Dilemma? Yes, yes, yes. I watched The Social Dilemma. And I'm fascinated on your thoughts on it. I think it's, it's fantastically accurate. Um, I actually wrote a book called Numbercast that was about a social media company that goes, hey, we have all this data what if he replaced the credit scoring system with this, with metrics of social influence, with all this data that we can harvest? And it turns out we can, if we take like times top 100 most important people, who do they hang out with? Who do those people hang out with? That's your three degrees of separation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and all of this stuff can be done as is. Like I've done this in small batches in groups using the Facebook API by based on like how many people of like what what's the top one percent of people commenting then who responds to them and who responds to them like this this stuff can actually be done without too much effort uh so going back to like the question of you know where we'll end up with this i wrote a story for slate um and it was called the state machine and it was based around like how would the ultimate how would the perfect responsive democracy happen and it turns out that it's a machine uh, it uses behavioral big data to impute the morals of people within its sphere of influence uh, and their behavior uses their behavior patterns to encode what they might 
believe is a fair and just set of laws into a new constitution every two weeks and keeps dynamically recompiling that. And there is some due process built around that because humans do want the illusion of control. There are still politicians, but they're more really like programmers that propose changes to the source code. And at the end of the day, this system is so complicated that nobody can really understand it. It's, there is enough data in this that it is just a gigantic black box. So at the end of the day, there's this, all this, um, this theater around its actual operation. <laughs> While it's running there, it's a black box. It's doing its job and everyone's actually happy. It's more big mother than big brother. Like the story starts with a, with a student who's just uh, he's doing his master's thesis on this system. And he's, ha he's tried to commit suicide. And this thing knows it has. This thing knows it hasn't been out in, in days. It sent texts to his friends saying, check up on this guy. When he walks by, uh, bots that are cleaning the streets come up to him and offer him little flowers. <laughs> and this is a system that works and everybody sort of accepts it, even though human governance, as you know, it has sort of been thrown out the window. But, but I think this is what, we, what we'll get to. We'll have black boxes. We'll keep throwing in more and more complicated black boxes and we'll keep building theaters around them to tell ourselves that we have the illusion of control. Can I, I got to ask a couple of follow-ups if that's okay. And I don't want to, I want to get into the, into the science a little bit too, but, but two things. Um, one, that isn't too different. I mean, I, I take what your, your original, um, your original comment to heart is that it's not too different than kind of how things are done yep. now. Yep. Right. Right. So, you know, I've sat on review panels for, you know, several million dollar grants and stuff like that. And it, you get a group of people together for a few days and we discuss the the merits of these applications. Um, and it's a beautiful process because we all, we talk about things, we argue, blah, 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 and a decision is made and there's a consensus, right? And there is a point always in those conversations where there's a tipping point in that consensus and it just kind of happens. And I'm, it's, I love that point. It's just this great sort of outgrowth of things, but there's no way it's very difficult to design that or think that you're going to get to that point at the beginning. Yes. Of it, right. Yes. Um, I guess that's more of a comment. Sorry. But uh, my question then is um, so, all right. So that far afield, you know, you have a vision for a, for a, a, an a for lack of a better term, an, an AI sort of government, right? In the short term, though, I'm, I'm interested, so how are you applying this in policy now, when mm. there are things in like, especially when there are things in in Asia, you know, about sort of social currency and things like that? Um, like, what does that look like on the ground today in the year 2020, um, 2021? On the ground, we are very much on the back foot. Um, okay. Because you have massive operations, like, for example, like Sri Lanka is in an interesting place where we have um, just off the coast of Colombo, which is a city where we have an entire artificial island being constructed out of the ocean with a brand new city on it. That's China. Um, and that's sort of the construction, the Belt and Road Initiative is happening hmm. there. And up there, you have India, which has the largest, single largest biometric database on Earth, which is hmm. Aadhaar. Uh, it's actually a terrifying size and scope. So things are trending more and more towards governments are kind of acting like monkeys. Um, and this and all of this stuff is like a very powerful wrench in their hands and they're going around throwing this at everything because they see it, the narrative here is twofold. One is control. Uh -huh. Fine. We, we can accept that. 
any ruling class on on earth to to sort of bastardize um who was a guy who was locked up for 40 years who Gramsci, right to sort of bastardize Gramsci. The ruling class exists to perpetuate itself we can accept that any ruling class basically wants to maintain that fine tip where it provides just enough goods and services to the rule so that they don't revolt and it's always in the interest of the ruling class to maintain control cool fine this is the eternal tug of war this uh, is the most optimistic here. podcast of all time by the way just, sorry. <laughs> oh, wait till you get no, it. Is the most but but get that's to what it. The, yeah, but that's the name of the game, and that's what we're here to play. And our role is really to prevent what we see our role as being is really to prevent stupidity on the parts of governments before things go into bills and acts. Like, for example, we're consulting on the Data Protection Act, Cybersecurity Act. Mm. You know, can we inject elements of common sense and also protection? So that you know, governments don't have police powers of access to whatever computer system it thinks uh, is necessary, from a laptop to uh, a cell phone, or anything that's dangerous. Um, so, but we're still on the back foot because governments see this as, hey, control. So we're going to go after it. Uh, we don't really understand this thing, but some really overpriced consultants have sold it to us. So we're going to bang on everything with it. And the second is economic growth, which is actually, which is a very real concern for countries that, um, particularly over here where infrastructure is still being built and there are billions of people who do need to benefit from that economic growth, but also numbers are sort of being hazily pulled out of nowhere. You know, AI will cause the economy to grow by 700 billion or whatever. And they're like, on, on, on what basis did you, like, how did you extrapolate this stuff? Because the last time we've seen this bigger shift was the Industrial Revolution, right? And nobody could have predicted the, the change in jobs and how economies were so fundamentally changed by that. So where are you getting these numbers from, really? But these have become sort of political football. Hmm. And we're sort of, we, all of us who are sort of in this development space are very much on the back foot here. Um, in some cases, we do win. In some cases, we can take um, open. We can take data. We can work with data providers from the government, non-state or state actors. We can build open source solutions. We can have them peer reviewed. We can have them like weighted to academic standards, and we can now say, right, use this because of this peer review, and because if you don't trust us, we have no ownership in it. We are not Palantir or you know Facebook. We don't care what you sort of, we don't care about uh, profits from this. But in most cases, it's, um, it's someone in government um, getting a phone call from, say, an outfit like Cambridge Analytica, who we kind of consider to be amateurs, but they're, I mean, come on, you have all that data and you, and you boils down to making phone calls to politicians and promising them like prostitutes or that's just amateur. I can do so much more with that data. After having just come through four years of that, it, I mean, it nothing, doesn't feel amateur to me. But nothing, I get that, what you're but nothing, nothing that they claimed was actually ever implemented. Kozinski's original research was incredibly interesting, but nothing that they claimed. Like there is no direct campaign that we can point to and say this is an analytical campaign. Yeah. Now, Murdoch, on the other hand, is is far more dangerous than any combination of AI you want to put together. So, you know, we're really focusing on the wrong targets here. So, but what happens is you you get you get a call from someone like that, and they go, "We have this new thing and this new system," uh, and they say, "Yes, we love it," and someone gets shafted down the line, and hundreds of millions of people get shafted down the line. Mm. So, uh, I know 
John has a few questions specifically on the book that I, I you wanted you, to ask. We don't need to John. derail this conversation because of that. Like, no, no, no. Let's talk book. Let's talk book. <laughs> Let's talk about no, book. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, listen, I, I am all about just deep diving into AI stuff in Cambridge Analytica. And uh, I'm assuming you've also, you know, watched Brexit on uh, HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually, so uh, one of the books I've written is, it's with HarperCollins right now. It's called The State of Data. And it goes from like 2000 years ago when how censuses were created and, and built and deployed a couple of thousand years ago and how like large empires were run, like the Maori Empire, which was mm -hmm. larger than the British Raj, and how those were administrated and how data was collected there two sort of smart cities and privacy concerns and came the Cambridge Analytica's of the world hmm. and even places where you can buy data for like millions of people. Hmm. Uh, so so hence the, hence the sort of uh, ready-made answer to where things are going. That is so great. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry. I just, you know, with this idea of, of so machine learning and, and, and data and things like that, like, and you talk about how we've been doing this, you know, as a species, civilized species for 2000 years or something. Um, I, so I'm in the education sphere and we've been, you know, obviously doing a lot. I mean, my daughter does her class on, on zoom, which isn't the same as AI, but it's still, okay. it's a, it's a leap in technology okay. and not sort of face to face teaching that we're just kind of getting used to over here. Um, and I watched the, uh, there's a great educator in uh, in India, I believe, Sugata Mitra, who um, basically his thing was like, you know, the past sort of system for education was to sort of perpetuate this empire. The British had people all over the world. Everyone needed to, to write clearly and, and do basic mathematics to be able to kind of move things around during in this huge empire. So it all had to be standardized. But now with with technology and with with AI machine learning, it can be highly sort of um, focused um, and much more organic, I guess. Um, yeah. And but it still leverages these big amounts of data. And I'm just wondering, like in your when you guys are thinking about policy or when you're thinking about you know like with the future of what you're of what you're doing with AI, what are the implications of that in the education sphere? And you know what are the sort of tentacles that, that come out of that for society? Sure. Um, I think in the education space, why, despite like long-term dystopia, I'm very optimistic about these technologies. Have you uh, heard of something called Squirrel.ai? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Squirrel.ai is, is is a fantastic example of what you can do, right? It's mm -hmm. I think it's already like the deployment is already larger than New York's uh, public education yeah. system. And you know, to be able to take this and then individually respond to each student based mm -hmm. on how they react to questions and deliver a highly personalized uh, syllabus. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And I wonder if you guys think in the policy sector, then when you take technology to where it meets society, if you thought about the implications of that, like we've had you know, 100, 150 years of knowing what the product of the old system is, but we have no yeah. idea what. So yeah, so there is actually a, a separate future of work and future of education research strand in you know, Think Tank, which uh, I occasionally dabble in, but I'm not like a deep dive member of. Um, and we are investigating whether these technologies can be deployed uh, in sort of extremely resource constrained countries hmm. to supplement teachers. And what I generally think is that 
so my my general theory of how this can be turned into good in sort of almost every, a lot of domains is that hopefully the future becomes not man versus machine and i use man to sort of represent human purely because it's more poetic um, another reason um sort of not man versus machine but man plus versus man plus machine versus man plus machine mm. we've uh we've seen this in domains like if you look at the original ai defeat that was gary kasparov 97 98 mm. Deep blue, and the world headlines were, you know, humanity defeat. It was terrible. And Kasparov comes back with this field called advanced chess, where he says, We've done chess engine versus human. Now we're going to pair a human with a chess engine and put them in front and put them against another human with a chess engine. And you find that perfectly ordinary students and people who are like mid range chess players at best, like people like me, immediately become far better than your average grandmaster. Mm. And like some of the world's best chess players have come from this advanced chess or centaur chess field because now you're really taking advantage of the machine's depth search and the narrow domain focus and the human's ability to generalize at scale across so many different domains and you're bringing in like free play and creativity. Um, and I think it's a far more wholesome thesis of how we can go forward. And we're seeing this in education, which I'm like... So uh, until like until Squirrel.ai and, and sort of the news around it broke, I just had this one Casper example that I was harping on all the time. And then I was like, wow, okay, this is a deployment at scale. Yeah. And what other places can we see this? Um, the US Air Force, I believe, is trialing uh, drones that act as um, wing, sort of wing, uh, what do you call it? Like, oh, like the um, oh uh, escort? Escort slash almost like, well, someone in a squadron, uh, part of a squadron that actually assists the human pilot, hmm. sort of follows and bases their maneuvers on the human pilot, but he is entirely man. in a, yeah, a wingman, yeah. So the US Air Force is already trialing drones that act as wingmen to jet fighters. So you're talking about, so, you know, five, 10 years down the line, you'll have people who go out in whatever the version of the F-35 is, and they'll actually be, they'll actually be like that soldier in Call of Duty, where you have so many AI-controlled characters moving around you, and you're really this, the centerpiece of this small play. Hmm. It's literally a theater of war, if you think about it. Amazing. So this is happening in so many different domains. And that's sort of the lead-in, I think, to Savage Crew, because I was trying to see if Instead of just writing about this and talking about this, could, we, could I actually do this in my own writing? Because this is sort of being very cyberpunk. And well, it turned out, you know, you can have planets that are designed by Markov chains and things <laughs> telling you what the weather's going to be and the characters and, you know, poetry powered by open AI stuff. So you can do all these things. And this is not impossible. I hope, yeah. That I would, that's, that's really the best optimistic thesis I can say, that this is not impossible. John, do you want to dive into some of your uh, more poignant questions? Um, yeah, I think for starters, uh, start with a small one here. How did you come with, up with all of the most powerful high-level AI being named after flowers? Oh, um, that was a, a, a call-out to Halo 343 Guilty Spark. But I, you know, I started thinking about Halo names and again, like etymology, I'm a language geek. So like the etymology of AI names in Halo didn't make sense to me. So I was thinking about how would 
uh, an interstellar organization name itself. And then I hit upon flowers. So that's why you have Amber Rose, 248 Amber Rose, you have Black Orchid, you have Silver Hyacinth, who was, you know, long-term deep hauling stuff. And Black Orchid is very much like the asshole operator who is probably ex-military, stuck in a civilian job, really doesn't like it, gives everyone hell. Uh, it, it seemed to fit, honestly. Um, I And it seemed to fit because... Um, of no other reason than there was an immediate, there was a hierarchy present. And it seemed to me that this hierarchy could also be expanded, you know, across a wide range of flaws. I can have great fun with this. No, I, I love it. Um, the general, I, I first love that, you know, your main character, Amber Rose, is, you know, a, was a human, you know, is now a human, a sentience that is digital form. And so, um, my main question would be, is that how you think we will make the jump to what we consider true AI? It's actually, because that, that is similar to, and you mentioned Halo's being an inspiration, you know, to how Cortana and the other AI are made. Mm -hmm. They're mapped yes. off of exactly. humans' exactly. brains. Um, my honest answer to that would be, I don't know. Like, while it is extremely tempting to say, yes, this is how I think the future would work, um, it, the, in reality, there are so many parts that this can take. And it could be like intellectually dishonest of me to go, yeah, this, this is how it's going to be. Um, I think there are going to be multiple ways that we approach this problem. Um, one of my previous books was called Inhuman Race, which uh, explored a version of the Chinese room problem proposed by John Seale. And, you know, the, the Backing behind that verse, these are not humans converted to AI, but these are really good simulacrums. Um, and they're built along sort of very Aristotelian uh, guidelines of how people should behave. It's really simple models. But would we recognize intelligence in things that look like us, that act like us? And you know, do we, do we sort of recognize this? Um, I think given how today is working out, I mean, given how the technology is today, I think there are multiple parts to this problem. We don't yet know which part might work. We might find that digitizing a human brain is actually a fantastic way of going about this because it's a, ten, it's a really good design. It's taken nature millions of years of product development and design to get here. So screw you, Apple. We have, we have like much better design here. Seriously, like, why would you throw away the R? <laughs> why would you throw away the R and D, right? But it it comes with, you know, endocrine response. It comes with hormone systems. It comes with all of these things required to keep a person to keep a brain sane and running. So even if you simulated this, you'd have to simulate a whole ton of chemical responses. If we can get that going, fantastic. Um, there is an alternate way that we might be able to construct an artificial network of neurons sufficiently complex that it can range across multiple domains. Whether it will be self-aware or not, I don't know. There's a really good, like an incredible book by Peter Watts called Blindsight, which uh, explores this thesis of is consciousness really, self-awareness really required for intelligence? It's a first contact story where they meet as something that is clearly far better evolved to sort of be an interstellar civilization. Um, 
this thing has no concept of itself absolutely none it can it does symbols it can do symbols all day it can you know have a back and forth it can transcode any sort of language to anything but it has no sense of itself at all because it doesn't need it that actually slows down signal processing is peter watts thesis he's a biologist and he's put a lot of thought into this uh, so i i think like i think we will actually get there as well like we may actually end up with with incredibly powerful um structures that can apparently take on any problem that you throw at it from recognizing pictures to making sure your toddler is fed um but have no concept of the word i have no can't talk about them so don't know what they are um do we call them ai in that case that would be very interesting no okay i because beacon civilization evolved from something like that um the the, the ultimate the ai that uh, these guys meet they evolved they evolved along those trends uh just quick follow up on that it, it, you know if if you if you're not self aware do you think you could still create story because to me the difference between us and an animal mm. is that we can create stories right every about humanity is 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 history which is like a story sure. right but there's no concept of itself sure. you can't tell that sure. tale i would actually argue on that point that <clears throat> bees make stories with how they dance to explain where they are whales yeah, i would definitely song. put that as an example of you know being able to convey information in a narrative that didn't require higher consciousness or at least not that one we understand yeah so we could go about this in two ways could you uh, could you Matt, just could you like wave your hand okay did you think about i'm going to move my hand x centimeters to the right and back again and this and that no, or did you just, just do i did a rough estimate and and your brain basically respond did this exactly um so were you self were you fully aware of that action No probably can, not. can we be said to be self aware which is a thorny is now a rather thorny concept in itself hmm. um are we actually aware of ourselves and every cell within us and every neuron that sparks or are we just sort of bumbling about with you know a vague post analysis in post going yeah cool this this fits with the general concept of i um so that could be you know we could have storytellers who don't need self awareness one the second it comes down to language so language we can treat it as a way of describing concepts and the relationships between them at a most rudimentary sort of bertrand russell level um we have extraordinary complex language uh, and i am aware that this is not a complete theory of language but it is actually quite unbreakable it's a very simple and very like unbreakable axiom if you think about it um we have language that allows us to describe many concepts we pair that with sort of intelligence which is the ability to encode that language onto the environment around us and thus share our thoughts and processes um we may have there may be animals with language that we just aren't able to decode it sure um, they may be describing concepts and relationships that are completely alien to us and we as a result we may think well that's a difference between us and them they can't tell stories we can whereas a whale um with its whale song might be telling the story of its migration uh, oh. we just don't know it we use that as a uh, as a device in beyond kuiper yeah, yeah and you you find that uh, 
you find that whichever metric you look at, if it's tool use, for example, uh, Octopus's um, evolved tool use almost completely from scratch. And Octopus is basically a giant brain dumped in the middle of the ocean. Uh, it doesn't really have friends or family, uh, no political inclinations to speak of. And, you know, octopuses don't live a long time, but in that short period, it evolves extremely advanced survival techniques, including tool use, you know, using shells as homes, breaking these things. Um, and you can argue that that's potentially a more advanced system. If you're going through the equivalent of 3000 years of human evolution in 15 years at the bottom of the sea, mm -hmm. um, and you happen to be like this weird parallel processing brain that has eight other parallel, like parallel engines hooked into it to the point where you have an asymptotic body map. You're not really aware of all of the devices plugged into your USB hub until you actually see them. That might actually be like, whichever metric we try to sort of use as a divider between us and animals, it can, you can argue that it can be broken. Not to bring this conversation down a few IQ points, but when you brought up octopuses, the uh, octopus eye, the uh, the study, octopi, octopi, yeah, sorry, octopi. Sorry, like second language. This is like there's a triple. There's a 2018 study that was uh, where scientists were giving octopi MDMA to see how mm. they would react it's, to each other. Fascinating yeah. studies, yeah. and it was the um, if I'm not mistaken the octopi that had MDMA would become social. And the ones that did not would stay away from each other. And it would... So it's, it's basically me at any party. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my substances and I shall talk to you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, Matt, I want to bring it down even a few more levels and talk about that whale song for a minute and do a call back to one of our previous episodes and say, that makes me think of Star Trek for the voyage home. It totally does. That, yep. the, uh, it, it, it also brings me uh, to the Star Trek episode of Next Generation where they go to, they go so far out into the universe where thought becomes reality, mm -hmm. right? Is that like you could, uh, if you think something, it appears and mm -hmm. then it like just destroys the con the construct of reality for them. Hang on, yeah. wasn't that the plot of a Michael Crichton novel? The Spear. Mm. The Spear, they were sending a movie where they, they find what seems like an alien spaceship at the bottom of the, uh, at the, bottom of the sea. Huh. And they go up for it and there's this massive, and it, and the weird thing is when they open it up, it says made in the USA. Uh, and there's, there's a far future date and I think like a half eaten Snickers bar or something. And there's a, <laughs> there's a spear inside. Anyone who touches it begins to manifest what they subconsciously want or are terrified of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like Solaris then too, if we're talking about that. Like yes, the whole actually, planet does that. Yes, yeah. yes, it's just Lem Solaris. I think yeah, yeah. I think Crichton was actually taking Solaris and turning yeah, yeah. into this and then strands of that thought also ended up in, in Star Trek. That makes sense. I think of that from the fear concept in uh, Event Horizon. Mm. Oh, Also a callback to a previous podcast episode. That's true. Event Horizon is a great movie, though. I need to watch Event Horizon at some point. You've never watched it? No, I have, I've not watched, for example, either of the Star Trek episodes that you just described. I've not watched Event Horizon. Um, and I only watched Star Wars in 2008. 
That's fine. I did. You know, it's okay. You just you just like offhandedly dropped Bertrand Bertrand Russell in a comment that you made, so you it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Like, so for, for us, like a lot of the science fiction that we got um, were translations of Russian science fiction. So oh. I grew up reading like the Strugatskys. I actually have like a decent collection of the Strugatskys and, and sort of Lem from Poland. We, there mm-hmm. were a lot of Polish science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got those like Eastern European stuff. And then Artsy Clark lived here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because then yeah. you had him right there. <laughs> Yeah, so Clark was basically, like, I, for example, I've studied astronomy. Um, he used to do a course at, at uh, the outside Clark Institute at Motors. I've studied oh, wow. astronomy there under him. So then there was Clark. And when you have someone like that there, that basically is science fiction for the yeah. entire nation. Uh, <laughs> so I, I missed out on a lot of this stuff. I eventually got around to it. I love awesome. it. You were just going to say quick, you know, reading through saw that you had callbacks right there in the beginning uh, to Joe Halderman and Forever War and then to Philip K. Dick with Replicants. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that those are also some, some influences of yours, some favorites. Yes, PKD in, in particular, um, I really admire. Um, because PKD's whole thing is the interrogation of reality, right? And I love how he goes about it. I don't think that like I've gotten there, but I don't think I can necessarily do PKD without being on acid. <laughs> uh, however, I admire the man for what for his unique approach uh, and his completely unique subset of themes. And the replicants are, you know, straight up call back to Electric Sheep. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. So yeah. I read, I read, and do Android's dream of Electric Sheep first, and then I saw Blade Runner. Mm. Uh, many years later and was so pissed off wow. uh, at Blade Runner. I was like, the, the book is always better than the movie. And people are telling me, no, this is like one of the best movies of all time. And it took me a sort of while to get around to Blade Runner being okay. Wow. Did you read that in the Heavy Metal magazine? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, not in, not in the Heavy Metal magazine. Um, I'm curious where it was published out there. Because here we published uh, that strip before Blade Runner. I can't wow. remember where I read it from, but it was an internet. It was a source on the internet hmm. uh, that someone had printed out and given to me. Like I remember like cutting it on a stack of printouts. Fascinating. Amazing. It's like in a three, it's in a three ring binder. Yeah. You know, basically like, you know, a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of like A4 papers that you can see where the print was, printer was running dry. <laughs> I love that. Oh man! So we have a few more minutes before we're gonna have to wrap up, and I wanted to see: was there anything else, John or Ben? Did you want to ask before we uh, let you to go? Yes, I had one big one, and this goes ties back into the salvage crew. Um, one of the awesome points of philosophy I got out of your book is um, the progression of species, and and mm. Beacon mentions this to amber rose like it's strange that you know most other either all other most other species you know advance from flesh from from functional flesh to literary flesh to functional machine to literary machine and then traverse the stars and it's how humanity has extended its adolescence by continuing to be this do you feel that like natural evolution of species or certainly of ours is to eventually become 
machine form and and go out from there yeah yeah i definitely think so um because i this is like a very limited form um it's not particularly well designed for space travel uh if you're talking about interstellar distances then really you know humans just human bodies don't make sense mm -hmm. that's why like all of the space like all of the Deep space travel in the salvage crew is either ships like Silver Hyacinth or uh, things like the Overseer just being beamed out at light speed, downloaded at the target destination and being built into a construct there. Because it really doesn't make sense to you know, put a bunch of humans on a ship and send them for a hundred years to a place. Um, yeah, I think we, we definitely have to, we have to evolve. Uh, and I think that's going to be part of it. Mm -hmm. um, the whole uh, beacon is a beacon also, but the thing is beacon also has a particular framing, which like if I, if I get around to doing the sequels, you'll see like that beacon is like on the bottom of the food chain in a lot of ways. And there are other people with very, very different framings out there that then, you know, beacon would be absolutely terrified of meeting. And beacon is a very Wittgenstein in intelligence. It, it knows from its history that, you know, water, metal, um, rock, these things are easily obtainable. So it's not really impressed with spaceships. Its definition, entire definition of intelligence is, are you playing the language game? Are you taking like a simple map that used to represent reality? And are you rearranging it in interesting aesthetic and abstract forms? And, you know, because OC is so bored that he's writing poetry all the time, Beacon goes, that thing over there is playing the language game. It's kind of really hacky and it's really weird adolescent tech, but it's playing the language game. Let me go talk to it. Yeah, that, that I thought was beautiful. Just kind of being denied first contact out of more or less boredom. <laughs> as we have, yeah. you know, risen. pretty much. Yeah, yeah you're saying just like, you know, it, Beacon was listening, everything else was just sending out repeating machine code. Mm -hmm. He was just waiting for something interesting. Yeah, he's just waiting for something with the sense of aesthetics, right? Yeah. Hmm. You're a planet sized intelligence and you're stuck there. And all you have is occasionally your ship smashes into you and tries to steal like a few rocks from your surface. You're, gonna be, <laughs> you're also going to be bored as hell. Yeah. You want the Mona Lisa to happen at some point. I, I also absolutely loved the way that you sort of depicted a kind of first contact moment where Beacon is first showing atoms and molecules as a way, because I've kind of pondered that as like, if I was going to try to convey something that'd be a universal language, it'd be like mm -mm. symbolistically or symbolically, mm -mm. like I hope you would understand these shapes and fig and like, we could start there and then he's going into actual geometric shapes and then he goes, mm -hmm. you know, three dimensions, four dimensions, five dimensions, six dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just recently read, uh, the three body problem and that is just uh, uh, another thing, just the idea of like encountering a race that is able to exist or comprehend in higher dimensions where mm -hmm. we yes. just limit out. Yes. And she, she, she knows dark forest theory is a very novel, uh, solution to the Fermi paradox. Have you, have you got to the second book yet? No. Oh, you, okay. Sorry. I'm not going to spoil it, uh, okay. but you absolutely have to read the second book. For me, that's where, you know, Lou goes from the very interesting first contact to this dude actually might be proposing a viable solution, third solution to the Fermi paradox. It, it gets pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, we have 
our own interpretation of the Fermi paradox um, is okay. that aliens don't want to talk to us because on their galactic civilization level, we are just too nascent and are in the mm. ob initial observation period. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, I st have started writing the second Savage Crew. So it has elements of both this, um, like the, this concept of how do you talk to other people? Uh, it literally starts off with, uh, I, I can't spoil it, but let's say the protagonist meets an alien race called the Pilgrims and they have no way of talking to each other. So what they do is they basically point to planets and stars and they send annotation data across to each other and they're trying to figure out, right, what does this symbol set mean? Because he keeps using it on ice planets. Does it mean ice or ice planet? Or is there something else that his senses are picking up? And the idea is that with enough data going back and forth, if you try and just point to things and say flower, tree, or this, yeah. and you do it at sort of like a planetary scale. And at some point, like the protagonist gets really fed up and, and listen, I want to talk to this thing about God. Instead, we are sitting here and we're building a lingua franca made entirely mm -hmm. out of, you know, celestial objects that we can point to. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of this, this whole theme of like, how do you talk to others? What kind of symbols would you accept? Um, it, it, there's different strains of this based on like how, you know, how, you might actually try and represent the world around you. If, hmm. if. Just a, just really quick, but I know we, we're running out, but I just want to, um, well, to say one, how enjoyable this conversation has been, but also, um, you know, with all of, with all of your, with all of your day job, basically, all the tech that you do, all the readings you do for that, all the research, why are you using science fiction stories? Why, why do you write that? And how does that connect with what you were just talking about, about trying to, uh, you know, communicate across worlds or all that kind of stuff? Is there any connection to that? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, I, yeah, I would think, well, I would say that in post analysis, I would say that I looked around for the largest canvases that I could find. And that was the canvas of SFF. And I don't know why I haven't written a lot of fantasy, despite a lot of my reading being from fantasy. A lot of my favorite authors are fantasy authors, but I've tended more towards, uh, towards science fiction, purely because I think that's a canvas on which you can lay an idea and you can stretch it in any direction you want and you can explore that idea and you can go what if and actually construct a scenario and, and explore that. It is just such a fantastic vehicle for doing that. I love it. You know, just for our listeners, where can they find you? Okay, I'm on www.yudanjay.com. That's, that's my name, .com. Uh, that, that's my main webpage. I'm on Twitter at, at Yudanjay. Um, it's mostly like, it's, it's sort of like come for the hype and stay for the memes kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm on facebook.com slash Yudanjay again. Perks of having a unique name is I get all the unique URLs. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, those three, those three are like where you can find me. I love it. Um, and then Salvage Crew's out now. Uh, Athon Books on Kindle and Podium Audio for Audible. Um, dude, this was unbelievable. So much incredible science and well, AI. Thank you so much. This was this was really like I hate mornings. 
uh, I understand why they happen. I don't see why they should have to happen to me. This is a really fantastic morning. I literally woke up like 10 minutes before your call was due. This has just been such a good morning. We never would have known. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, from the email saying, give me five minutes. <laughs> well, thanks so much, man, for coming on. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon for your, for uh, Salvage Crew Part 2. And uh, thanks again for listening, everyone. And uh, have a great night. <laughs>